to reading it from 1 Corinthians chapter 2. The Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. The person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God, but considers them foolishness and cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, But such a person is not subject to merely human judgments, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Last week, we heard about the success-driven celebrity culture of first century Corinth. And this week is the second in our series on Paul's letter to the Corinthians. That culture was not dissimilar in some ways to our culture today. And it was the environment in which Paul the Apostle had birthed a church in AD 50. Moving on a year and a half later, and then now, three years after he left Corinth, he's writing from Ephesus to the church in Corinth with a whole addressing a whole raft of questions and issues that have arisen since he lived there. And we learned that that fledgling church in boomtown Corinth was split by that celebrity culture that had leaked into church life. And the Apostle Paul responded by explaining that the crucified Christ is the only person that we are to look to and the rallying point for unity in the church. So this week we're going to look at chapter 2. I do recommend picking up one of the Bibles on the church chairs and turning to page 1145 because we will be looking at other scriptures beyond those that are printed in your service sheet. So do do grab a Bible, page 1145. And um, it's also really good practice to get familiar with the Bible, um, finding where where these things are. So let's pray before I begin. Lord, thank you that you are present with us now. Come and fill us with your Holy Spirit. Help me to speak and give us all ears to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, so chapter 2, and chapter 2 is really exciting because... In chapter 2, the Apostle Paul tells the Christians in Corinth that as Christian, as Christians, they can experience the power of God, the Holy Spirit, in their lives. 
He tells them that they can have access to God's wisdom in their lives. And he tells them that they can grow into having the mind of Christ. Isn't that amazing? Imagine that. Experiencing God's power, accessing God's wisdom, and having the mind of Christ. Who wouldn't want to have those attributes this morning? I wouldn't. I'd I'd love to have those attributes. All of them in, in, in large quantity. And he's writing, it's important to realize, he's writing to ordinary Christians in the church in Corinth. People like you and me. So that means that God's power, God's wisdom, and the mind of Christ are available to us too. And uh, that's such good news. It sounds amazing. Is it too good to be true, though? Well, there can be a problem. Firstly, some of us do not, or at least are not currently, experiencing the Spirit's power in our lives. Perhaps for a whole number of different reasons. Secondly, some of us have known the Spirit's power in our lives, but we sort of leak Somehow it seems to have diminished over time or after certain setbacks or in a new phase of our life. And we don't clearly see God's power working in our lives much or if at all. But the good news is there are some reasons and remedies for this. And in chapter 2 we're going to learn a bit more about what Paul means by God's power, the Spirit's power. And then we're going to consider how we might live with a bit more of that power in our lives. So here we go. In this one fairly short chapter we're looking at today, Paul uses the word spirit, the Greek word is sophia, sophia. He uses the word spirit 13 times, which is a lot of times. Sorry, sophia is the the word for knowledge, I beg your pardon. He He uses the word spirit 13 times, and he speaks about wisdom a lot. That's the Greek word sophia. Why does he do that, and what is he talking about? Well, with the early church, right from the outset, the first disciples had discovered something that became central to the understanding of how God relates to human beings, and that was essential to Christian life. And that was the gift of the Holy Spirit. And what those first disciples discovered firsthand for themselves was as they spread the good news of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, whenever a person was properly converted to the faith, whenever a person repented of their sins, uh, put their faith in Jesus, something remarkable happened. They underwent a kind of transformation as the Holy Spirit entered their hearts and their minds with the result that their attitudes changed, their characters changed, and the very focus of their lives changed, and they became more like Jesus, or, yeah, more like Jesus. In fact, the very word Christian was first used, by the way, Christian doesn't actually mean a follower of Jesus. It was first used not by Christians themselves, but by non-believers who saw the early church in Antioch and nicknamed the believers Little Christs. That's what it means. It means little messiahs or little Christs. And um, hence the name Christians came into being. The first day that I encountered God in my life, in a little thatch roof church in South Africa in March 2000, I had no idea what exactly was going on. But I arrived one morning with, with a friend 
as I was a non-believer, I wasn't a churchgoer. I didn't think I believed in God at all at the time. But I had a powerful experience of the presence of God and I left that place absolutely convinced, dead sure, that my life was never going to be the same again. And that turned out to be right. Because although I didn't realise it at the time, I now know that that was the moment when God's spirit came to live in me. From that moment on, I saw the world through new eyes, through a new filter, if you like, and that has never gone away. And in the early church, they found that when a person received the Holy Spirit, sometimes there were obvious outward manifestations, as on the day of Pentecost, but not just then. In fact, the book of Acts records many such occasions. So just keep your finger in chapter 2 at the moment, but turn back to page 1101. I just want to show you a, a short passage. Um, it's, chapter, it's Acts chapter 8, verse 14. It's on page 1101. I'll give you a moment to find that. And this is in the very early life of the church, well before Paul visited Corinth. So it's on page 1101, and it's chapter 8, verse 14. And this is what, this is what it says. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers that they might receive the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. They had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. And when Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, Give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, basically, Peter tells Simon to get lost because the Holy Spirit can't be bought with money. But the point is, when someone received the Spirit, the power of God transformed them in ways that were obvious from the outside. And there are many other occasions documented in the book of Acts, where we see similar situations when people receive the Holy Spirit. And on May the 27th this year, we have our baptism and confirmation um, service here at St. Matthew's. And it's going to be a really joyous occasion with lots of people uh, getting baptised or affirming their baptismal vows and getting confirmed. And... um, In a way, in the confirmation service, the bishop takes the place of really what we read the apostles doing there in that passage. Because in a confirmation service, what the bishop does is this. I'm going to just do it with Kirsty, okay? So I'm going to act the bishop, okay? In the confirmation service, after you can you can sit oh, you can sit down. Okay, you can stand. Okay. <laughs> after after the after a person's been baptized or affirmed their baptismal vows and they're being confirmed, the bishop does this. He lays his hands on their head and he says, Confirm in this your servant Kirsty, your Holy Spirit. And what he's saying, and what he's sa- you sit down. And, and 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 what he's saying is. It doesn't necessarily mean that a person hasn't already received the Holy Spirit, but it's a prayer asking God to confirm the Spirit 
in that person's life. In other words, asking God to make the Spirit's presence in that person's life evident and lively, obvious if you like, just as happened when the apostles laid their hands on the baptised Christians in Samaria. And of course, you don't have to be a bishop to pray for someone to receive the Holy Spirit. Any believer can do that. I've prayed for dozens of people in my life to be filled with the Holy Spirit, and many of them have been. And I'm not a bishop. So it's God's power, not the bishop's. But in the confirmation service, he is representing, if you like, the role of those apostles, the way that the role they played in the early church when they laid hands on people who had been baptised and received the Holy Spirit. Okay, that was a bit of an aside. Let's turn back to chapter 2 on page 1145. And in chapter 2, what Paul does really, all the way through this chapter, is to draw a comparison between an unspiritual life, if you like, a worldly life, and a spiritual one. And by spiritual, I definitely mean the Holy Spirit, God's Holy Spirit. And rather than go through the chapter verse by verse, because it's an extraordinary chapter, you could preach a sermon on every single verse probably in this chapter, what I've done is I've drawn up um, on my next slide, no, we'll ask Andrew to move it on, Um, I've drawn up on my next slide um, a comparison. I've pulled out the phrases that Paul uses in this chapter on the left-hand side for Examples, if you like, of the worldly life, and then the examples that he uses in this chapter of a spiritual life. And a worldly life, says Paul, is impressed by eloquence and wisdom. This was the celebrity culture. While Paul himself came to them with nothing but Christ crucified in weakness, fear, and trembling. So he wasn't a suave, smooth celebrity. He was... In fact, generally, Paul is described in, in many of, of the letters as really not very consequential in his looks or the way he spoke or, or anything like that. But he came in weakness, fear, and trembling. Sometimes, I don't know about you, sometimes we go to a conference or a performance where we're carried away by the brilliance of the speaker. All be, could be a Christian, could, could be a non-Christian. But... And we leave excited about what we've heard because the speaker has been so brilliant, okay? But actually, a few days later, when when that has worn off, we realise that there perhaps wasn't very much substance to it. By contrast, Paul says in verse 4, his message and his preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Now, it's interesting, isn't it? He doesn't tell us exactly what that, demonstration was um, of the Spirit's power, but biblical scholars like Gordon Fee and Anthony Thistleton and others agree that the Spirit's power would most likely have meant it would have been seen by the transformed lives of the people who Paul had brought to faith, and which he often refers to, as well as some of the spiritual gifts, prophetic words, speaking in tongues, miracle healings, uh, demonic exorcisms, which accompanied his ministry, and those of the other apostles. Quite early on in my Christian life, I was leading an alpha group at Greyfriars, and a young woman on the course called Andrea came up one day, uh, she came in one day for the course, and she was in tears. And she told us that she'd just had it confirmed that she was pregnant, but that she was going to lose the baby. 
because um, of a tear in the uterine wall. And the consultant told her to prepare for a miscarriage because he had never seen a condition like this ever um, get past, I don't know, three months or something like that. He, gave her, he basically gave her no hope. Now, the subject that night of the talk was prayer. And I can tell you that as all the others in the group looked to me to take a lead, it was with immense fear and trembling and a great sense of weakness that I said, well, come on, let's pray for Andrea. So some of us gathered round her, we laid our hands on her and prayed for healing. And I had precious little faith for that prayer. A few weeks later, she bounded into the Alpha course, a grin from ear to ear, and told us that the follow-up scan, the wall of the uterus was absolutely perfect with no sign of the condition whatsoever, and they had no explanation for how that could be. Andrea has always called her daughter Layla her miracle child. And do you know, my faith increased a thousand percent as a result of that. Because I knew that what had happened had nothing to do with me or any other human being, but on God's power. And the comparison between these two kinds of lives is stark, isn't it? There's a massive gulf between those two kinds of lives, the worldly life and the spirit-led life that relies totally on God's power, on God's wisdom. And the bridge between them The only way to get from the left side to the right side is through the cross of Christ. And when someone genuinely repents of the things that are wrong in their life and accepts Jesus into their life, the power of God can be seen in their lives. They cross that bridge. It's evident, whether that's overcoming addictions or getting a whole new joy in life, or losing your pride or being more con- and being more concerned about others. I remember on um, a Holy Spirit day on, on another Alpha course many years ago, a young man called Phil who rode a motorbike. And he came every week to Alpha. He really wanted to find out if there was anything to this Christian faith. And on the Holy Spirit day, he asked Jesus into his life and he asked me to pray with him to receive the Holy Spirit. So I did. And nothing happened. So we prayed some more, and apparently, still, nothing happened. And he was very polite, but he was obviously disappointed. And I went home that day with a heavy heart, thinking, God, why didn't you reveal yourself to him? And on the next Sunday, he turned up at church on his motorbike, and he he had the biggest grin on his face you've ever seen. It was like the cat had got the cream. He couldn't stop smiling because at some point between that Holy Spirit day and the Sunday the Holy Spirit had filled him and the prayer had been answered and do you know why was there a delay I don't know but I have a hunch that the Lord wanted to show both Phil and myself that his power is sovereign that despite what we wanted to happen and when we wanted it to happen it's God's timing not ours you know in the gospels a leper who Jesus has prayed for, was healed, not on the spot, but on his way to show himself to the priest afterwards as he went in faith. Another person I knew, similar, a young mum, had come to faith and had been prayed for several times to receive the Spirit, but it was right at the end of the Alpha course that she was having a line one Sunday morning, because she wasn't a churchgoer. 
and uh, her young children were playing on the bed. Her husband was reading the newspaper in the bed next to her when the spirit just landed on her. And I wish she was here to explain it, but you should have seen the look in her eyes when she told us of the love and the joy that just coursed through her veins. And she, she just fell in love with Jesus in that moment, right there and then. Her husband didn't have a clue what was going on, except she looked exceptionally happy. She's at church every Sunday now. <laughs> so what do we need to live this spirit-filled life rather than the worldly one, which, if we're honest, we often get sucked back into. It's very easy as a Christian. as We, we live this spirit, spirit-led life, but it's easy to get sucked back into it. Well, if you would like to lead this spirit-filled life and you have never asked Jesus to be Lord of your life, then that's the best place to start, by inviting Jesus into your heart. Could I ask you just to turn to another verse in the Bible? It's on page 1094, Acts chapter 2 and verse 38. So 1094. Because this verse, I'll I'll just talk as you find it, this verse is a brilliant summary from the Apostle Peter from what is known as the kind of first sermon ever preached, excluding Jesus. But here Peter explains very clearly what's entailed in becoming a full-blown Christian, if you like. And what's going on here is that the people are asking him, what do we have to do? What do we have to do? So, page 1094, Acts chapter 2, verse 38. This is what Peter answers as the people say, what do we have to do? He says, repent and be baptised, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he goes on to say that this is for all people, for all time, and that this is how we are to be saved. So first, if you look at that verse, there's a turning away from the things that are wrong in our lives. If we don't, God's Spirit will have a hard time breaking through. Secondly, we have to turn to Jesus, who loves us so much that he died for us on the cross. And we need to put our trust in him and then get baptised by his church in order to show that we truly mean it. And when we do those things, God gives us his Holy Spirit to help us to lead this spirit-led life. Now, I know that some of us have done all these things. We've been filled with the Holy Spirit. But as I said earlier, some of us leak over time. It seems to kind of leak out of us. And when we leak, we lose our desire to get close to God, to pray, to read the scriptures... And then we tend to drift back into the worldly life. So what's the answer? Prayer is the answer. And Jesus tells us how to pray in this situation. It comes straight from our gospel reading this morning that Paul read the second reading. Luke 11, verse 9. You can just turn to it in your service sheet if you like. And what Jesus says is this. He says, ask and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. To the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And then jumping ahead a little bit. If you then, 
even though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who, what? Ask. To those who ask him. We need to ask him. And Paul, writing to the Ephesians, says, go on being filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, ask God daily to fill you. Do you know, we, we probably all have our own little things that we do, but every, when I begin my prayer time in the morning, I begin like this. I start by saying, Father, I love you, I worship you, I praise you. And then I turn to Jesus and I say, Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. Jesus, I love you. And I always do it three times because of, the, of that, that reconciliation between Jesus and Peter on the shore of the Galilee when, when Jesus restores his relationship. And I feel it kind of clears out everything that's in between us. But then I say, Holy Spirit, I worship you, Holy Spirit. I welcome you. Come and fill me today afresh with your Holy Spirit. We've got to ask him. So should we ask him?